everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. My guest today is a guy called Jeff Wald. Jeff has written a book called The End of Jobs, and it's not as depressing as the title might lend it to be, but it does open a door into some things that probably all of us need to think about as we uh, hopefully see a light at the end of the tunnel from the pandemic. But before I tell you about Jeff, I want to check in on everybody. I have been posting podcasts regularly, but I have not been as frequent as I often was before. Uh, It's been about a year since the pandemic kind of really took hold on all of us. Um, So how's everybody doing? Right. Uh, In many cases, we've been unable to keep connections to people or we lost connections or we don't see people as regularly or we're on every freaking Zoom call imaginable. Right. Um, Let me know how you're holding up. You can always send me an email. It's DavidDaveWakeman.com. You know, like I said at the start, though, it's it's been a tough year. Um, I think we're going to get we're getting closer to some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. I got my first shot of the uh, Moderna vaccine about 10 days ago. So I'm set on April 6th to get my second dose. I figured if I'm getting the vaccine, we got to be getting making some progress, Um, you know, but it's been tough, right? We will recover. I think that's the message that I want to reinforce to people, but it might not be easy, right? We're going to have to work hard, be more creative, be more thoughtful than we have been before. On that topic, make sure if you haven't already, check out the Slack group I created for the Talking Tickets newsletter, uh, which I have kept going throughout this pandemic. It has been a way for me to keep my mental health in order is by writing about tickets and where we're going. Uh, And you can get the newsletter and get into the uh, Slack group uh, first at talkingtickets.substack.com or by sending me an email, daviddavewakeman.com. if you've liked these, some, some of the mini episodes I've been throwing in with some of the basic foundational ideas or concepts or things we're dealing with as we head through the pandemic, let me know. I'm going to put a link for you to give me some feedback in the show notes. Uh, but again, you can also send me an email, daviddavewakeman.com. Let me know what's going on. Right. Um, make sure you check out my partners. I'm, I'm doing a cool thing with Eventelect. Uh, I was talking about NPS scores, which is net promoter score for a while and how it is just a great number to track to tell you whether or not your business is heading in the right direction or not. Uh, so Patrick Ryan sent me an email. He said, hey, look, we just tested our NPS score. and We came back with a 77. Uh, so we are doing a couple of cool things on my blog and the newsletter here on the podcast to promote NPS score, to show you why it's valuable, to help you understand what it means for businesses, uh, show you how to do it for yourself, you know, all kinds of cool stuff around NPS score. But one thing that I do have that you can get right now is I created a worksheet with the Eventelect team that helps you put together your own NPS survey. You can get that by sending me an email at daviddavewakeman.com and I'll happy to share it with you. It's a simple process, but we lay it out and explain it with some examples and some benchmarks that'll be great. Uh, make sure you also check out my friends at ActivityStream, ActivityStream.com. They are the guys behind and girls behind the We Will Recover project. Uh, it's been a great resource for people, 20 organizations from around the world uh, coming together with ideas and things to help you recover. I mean, what gets better than free ideas for recovery? Um, and Super great people, right? Super great people. So check them out. Check out my friends at Booking Protect, Simon, Kat, Kath, the whole crew, right? As we come through the pandemic, peace of mind, uh, getting people to feel comfortable buying tickets again may be a challenge. Refund protection can be a valuable tool in helping people 
overcome any anxiety they have or any concerns they have about shows being canceled or uh, things out of their control causing them to miss a show, check them out, bookingprotect.com, and make sure you get my Talking Tickets newsletter. That's talkingtickets.substack.com. Uh, back to Jeff Wald. Now, so Jeff Wald wrote this book called The End of Jobs. And Jeff is, um, it's not as depressing as it sounds, but Jeff wanted to lay down the law on some things that uh, people are throwing around, right? Like the gig economy, on-demand workforce, um, you know, dislocation of jobs, all kinds of stuff. And what we talked about was a couple of really interesting ideas. We did talk about the future of jobs and what it means. In uh, the way Jeff and I talk about it, we talk more about flexibility and the ability if you have a skill set or if you have uh, something that you do better than other people or you know, even something that you like to do more than other people, you have greater flexibility. At the same time, there are responsibilities that businesses and the government and organizations that help support the economy have at the same time. We talked about the mindset you need to be successful in this new economy. We talked about data, a lot of data around what the quote unquote end of jobs will look like. Right. Uh, what really is going on in the economy? How fast is the economy really evolving? What some of these trends are likely to mean for um, people as we come out of the pandemic? You know, even what it might look like for people in sports and tickets and concerts and theater and all kinds of things. Um and then we, we finish it, but with a few predictions about how things might look after the pandemic. You know, like some of these big, bold statements people making, how many of them are really going to hold true? So this was like a really, really interesting conversation with Jeff. I hope you dig it. Uh, without more from me, here's me and Jeff Wald on The Business of Fun. I want to welcome Jeff Wald to The Business of Fun podcast. Jeff, how are you? I am doing great, Dave. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, this is going to be fun because we're going to talk about something very exciting, which is your book called The End of Jobs. And I think that's great right now because I know a lot of people need jobs. Um, so tell us a little bit about the book to start with. And then I have some questions that I want to ask because I think this is a really interesting topic to hit on right now. Well, I appreciate it. Look, the book is my attempt to bring some critical thinking and some frameworks to those that are concerned about the future of work. It is to look at history, to look at data, to look at how companies actually engage workers and use those lenses to make predictions about remote work, about on-demand work, about the robots and AI, about how the nature of the job is changing. Because when I called the book The End of Jobs, it was not... almost always been uninterrupted throughout history, but the job as we know it, that nine to five, one office, one manager job, is giving way to this fluid, team-based, always on, work from anywhere job. And so that's the transition that we need to be mindful of. We need to be mindful of it in the context of remote work, the context of on-demand work, in the context of automation or the robots and AI and how they're gonna impact the job market. You brought up the idea of automation too, because, and I was actually going to ask you about the difference between remote work and on-demand work and like, you know, give people some context on this, but actually I'm going to step into automation because a lot of times, and I'm curious about this, um, automation is held up as like the big bad wolf, the boogeyman in the room. Um, but so much of stuff, so many things we already do are automated, right? 100%. Um, 
you know, should people be as afraid of automation and automating jo of jobs as we often are sold? Or is this like something that's no. a little bit more just fear driven for no reason except for somebody's going to profit off of it? So look, automation always happens. You can go back to the spinning jenny, the weaving loom, the cotton gin. Like these are all automation in the process of making fabric, making clothing. And so all that brings us to the first industrial revolution. But automation had been happening for hundreds of years, thousands of years before. Automation is just the taking of a task and having a machine or some other process do the task. And whenever you see repetitive high volume tasks in the world of work, 100% of the time, save for customer service interactions, they get automated. Those tasks eventually get automated. So this is nothing new, but here's what happens, Dave. In each of the three industrial revolutions that have occurred prior, and we are calling the robots and AI the fourth industrial revolution, is there are these three phases. The first phase is the freak out phase. And we in that, we are deep in the freak out phase. People here, McKinsey and Oxford and PricewaterhouseCoopers, 50% of jobs are going to go. And they take that headline and they run with it. Just for the record, by the way, that is not what any of those reports actually said. For those of us that spend their time sadly reading those reports and spelling over them and, and really diving in, that is not at all what those reports said. But that freak out phase is something we've seen throughout history. And it quickly moves to the thing that people should be concerned about, right? which is the dislocation phase. And there is an economic and social dislocation that occurs whenever a new technology or technologies come on stream that massively increase the rate of automation. Automation is always happening always happening, always will. But sometimes mechanization, electrification, computerization, the first three industrial revolutions, the rate of change is so quickly, uh, is, is so quick that the dislocation happens so quickly and it's such a large scale. And that is why they're called industrial revolutions. <clears throat> These things happen and there is a little bit of a revolution and sometimes, by the way, the dislocation is at such a scale that there's an actual revolution, and that is a part of our history. But then we move to that third phase of these industrial revolutions, right? We, are be we have moved out of the freakout phase or kind of still on the tail end of the freakout phase of the fourth industrial revolution, and we are in the dislocation phase firmly. But that fourth phase, that th sorry, that third phase in these industrial revolutions, more jobs are created. The standards of living are higher. People are working fewer hours. It happens every time. So is automation something to be feared? Maybe, and certainly for some people in some functions, it means your job has a high probability of going. So for certain companies, for certain people, for certain families and certain communities, yes, this is something to be feared. But for society as a whole, it always leads to more jobs. It always leads to a higher standard of living. It always leads to people having to work fewer hours to have that standard of living. And so it is always societally a very good thing. The concern that we as a society should have is for those people that do get automated, are we providing the infrastructure, the retraining necessary for them to move to the jobs that are being created? So that's, that's always the fear. So the, the premise of the book, right? The end of jobs is, or, I don't want to say the, the whole premise because then I'm going to look wrong. I'm going to look dumb when I'm wrong. Um, but what I guess what I wanted to ask about was go back to the on-demand nature of jobs now. And because there's a lot of lot more freelancing, there's a lot more on-demand tasks. There's a lot more, um, I think what people might call either consider part-time or piecemeal mm -hmm. kind of roles. 
instinctively, I think a lot of people think of that as a negative. Um, but your book seems to offer up the idea that that's absolutely not correct and that these on-demand jobs actually give people greater strength in the market because if they have developed a specific skill set or a, mm-hmm. you know, a strong point of view, a strong set of skills, they can take those skills and apply them in a bunch of different places and they don't have to just work on one idea, like mm-hmm. one, one problem. Is it, am I wrong or, or is that how people should be thinking about this? So, no, you're not wrong. But as with a lot of things within labor, we need to start doing subdivisions. Are there certain aspects of the on-demand economy that are massively benef- beneficial to workers? Of course. Are there some aspects of the on-demand economy that workers are only in because they have no other choice and they are being taken advantage of and they're not being given their health care and their benefits and a host of other things? Yeah. That's a part of the on-demand economy too. But we need to look at the data. So look, if we look at the high end of the on-demand economy, those people are 100% fine. Nobody needs to worry about them. They don't need any regulatory help. They don't need social safety net help. They're fine. But that's not the majority of the on-demand economy. But what we do know is that 80% of people in the on-demand economy are there by choice. At the high end or even at lower ends, they enjoy the flexibility. They enjoy being their own boss. They enjoy working when they want and how they want. Now, we also know that the on-demand economy is not new. The gig market, as we know it, the Ubers and the Lyfts and the DoorDashes and the Postmates and the Instacarts, that is all relatively new. But on-demand has been around for generations and been a very large part of the labor force for generations. We also know that the on-demand economy, while growing, is not growing that rapidly. It is taking slow and steady market share from the W-2 model, the standardized W-2 that we all know, but it is not all of a sudden about to take over the labor force. And there are regulatory reasons for that. There are business process reasons for that. There are change management reasons for that. But over the last 10 years, the on-demand economy has taken about 3% market share, meaning people that were full-time employees are now now part-time or gig or on-demand however we classify them. So while certain companies like Instacart and Uber and all these things are growing tremendously and we hear about them and DoorDash went public and all these other things, they're not causing a fundamental shift in the labor force, right? Let's just take our friends at DoorDash. DoorDash has formalized the job of the delivery person. Mm -hmm. We didn't take a bunch of W-2 delivery people and say, you guys are no longer W-2s, you're now gonna work on demand. We took what was, in a lot of cases, a gray market transaction, people working for cash under the table. We took what was, in a lot of context, a side gig or a hustle for somebody, and we formalized it. And everybody there now receives an IRS form 1099, and we are tracking all their wages and all these other things. Is that a fundamental shift in the labor force? It isn't. It just isn't. It is a movement from the gray market to the formalized economy, and it captures a lot of headlines but it is not a fundamental shift. A fundamental shift occurs when we have people that have a W-2 workforce, a full-time, full benefits and all that, and they start moving away from that. That is a shift in the underlying dynamics of the labor market. And again, over the last 10 years, we saw a 3% market shift. So growth, but everybody that is like, oh my God, on demand is gonna be this percent of the labor force and it's gonna grow by 100%. No, It, it just full stop will not. Well, this 3% number is interesting because I tell people as a marketer, um, 
I don't guess, I follow the data and I follow the numbers. And it seems that like this 3% number actually, it's not significant at all, especially if you put it in context of periods of the strongest economies in America, like mm-hmm. historically, because most people don't recognize that the rate of, and I'm gonna probably butcher the number here, but let's forgive me, um, but during the height of the American economy, when the middle class was growing at um, the, the fastest rate, uh, uh, inequality was at its lowest rate, the rate of uh, entrepreneurship, so gig economies in that context, right, like mm-hmm. small mom and pop shops, one or two people, uh, was about 10 times greater than it is today, I think was the number I saw recently. So actually, if you were to see like gig workers or on-demand work uh, growing and strengthening with those um, sort of um, supports that people need, right? Like um, income protections and healthcare and all these things. It would actually just be returning to some of those times when we thought that the economy acted more fairly or am I, again, misreading your, your research and your work? Well, what I would say is I, you know, diff- I haven't seen that report, so I'll, I'll, I'll hold off on commenting on it until I can read it and understand. But look, the 3% market share shift, and it's important to know because you raise a very, very good point. A lot of people say, oh, the on-demand economy is growing by this. And you say, okay, but you need to take out normal economic growth because if all, if, you know, every single boat's rising, and that's why the, my friends at the ADP Research Institute looked at the underlying ADP payroll data and 1099 data, and they were able to look company by company over thousands of companies. This company had 500 employees and they grew to 510. Okay, but was that economic growth or was that shift share between their full-time employees and their on-demand employees? And so we track that while extrapolating out normalized economic growth. And all of that yields a 3% market share, which on its face, Dave, doesn't seem like that much. But let's remember, this is 3% of 164 million person labor force. And so you're talking about 5 million people that are now working at an on-demand capacity that were 10 years ago working in a W-2 capacity. Mm-hmm. So look, statistically, it may not be significant, but it is a very, very large number of Americans that are were in a W-2 context that moved into an on-demand context. And remember, every piece of data we have says that 80% of them are doing it by choice and are happy with the decision. And the specific question asked in the McKinsey study was, would you take a full-time job if offered? 80% say no. So that's the data we have. Look, I'm not saying the data is perfect, and I'm not saying that it was representative of what happened during COVID and during an economic downturn, because all those surveys were taken during periods of economic growth. To your point, you need to be mindful of what people say at different points in time. But the data we have tells us that slow and steady growth and people mostly happy. That's the data we have. Well, and the question I would ask too is, um, you know, you said 80% of people would would say, oh, I wouldn't take a full-time job if I was offered one. Uh, the you know because as a marketer right i tell people you segment by behavior mm-hmm. and because what people say and what they do is often entirely different uh, do we have any data that shows like that people are actually following through with that or you know like hey i have been offered a job and i am saying no right, that's a great question no is the answer to that right so this was just these are very specific survey results from taken at one point in time and so not only do we not have follow-up, and these surveys are usually about six to 8,000 people that get surveyed in these studies. 
by McKinsey, by Upwork, by the Freelancers Union, by MBO Partners. Those are the groups that have run the surveys for years. Bureau of Labor Statistics has run a couple of these surveys. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I think, was 60,000 uh, respondents. So not only do we not have follow-up on those people, but importantly, we don't have what their reactions were to that or their answers to that question in April of 2020, in May of 2020, right? When you are experiencing a tremendous economic contraction, is there a benefit in being a part of a big ship in that storm? I would, I would argue yes. I would argue a lot of those people all of a sudden would say, no, 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 I'd like a full-time job now, please. Because the on-demand economy is what it is because it allows that agility, allows that flexibility, which means as an employer, I can turn that tap on and I can use it to bring in subject matter experts and new geographies and people with specific skills and a host of other things that allow me to do it in an on-demand capacity because revenue is growing. But there is the flip side to that that people mm -hmm. seem to forget, which is that I can turn it off real quick too. I can end all of my 1099 engagements and almost all of my temp engagements in a moment, whereas removing my W-2 workers from a regulatory standpoint and a host of other reasons is very difficult, time-consuming, and costly. And so the on-demand economy in April and May and June, the data I've seen is it contracted 75 to 80%. Whereas the full-time employment market had contracted 10 to 15%. So that they, they bore the brunt of it. And now they're boring the bearing the brunt of the re-engagement with the workforce. So the on-demand economy is almost back to where it was uh, pre-pandemic, but it's not back yet. I would actually say that that probably mirrors my um, experience even because and I'm not sure you're probably in a somewhat similar role as well because you work mostly for your you consider yourself working for yourself um that most of these things it did fall apart um pretty fast especially for live entertainment i mean nothing was hit harder than that um but let me ask you so what is going to be the mix going forward like what is what is how how is this thing going to work what is the you know the end of jobs what's the future of jobs so if we think about it in the on-demand context the short answer is I don't know. I mean, nobody knows. <laughs> we have inklings of the beginnings of data, of surveys, of the on-demand workers, surveys of HR and procurement and legal and the C-suite. We have inklings that there might be a slight pickup in the market share that the on-demand economy uh, is taking. That instead of a 3% growth rate over the next 10 years, as we had over the previous, maybe it'd be 4% growth rate. 4% market share take. So, and that is because people saw the benefit of having this on-demand labor force. Mm -hmm. The flip side, right, that's kind of the, the tailwind pushing the on-demand economy forward is companies see, oh, this agility, this was super important because God willing, this is the only pandemic we'll see, but it's certainly not the only economic downturn we're going to see. And it's certainly right. not the only volatility we're going to see. And on-demand really helped us in that, in those volatile times. The headwind Pushing back, though, is the regulatory environment. So we have a new administration with a very different approach to labor, and they may well tighten some of the restrictions. And we saw this in California, by the way. We saw Prop 22, or AB5, I should say, first in California, which said basically everyone's got to be an employee. And then we saw Prop 22 get passed, AB5 being a bill by the legislature, Assembly Bill Number 5. And then Prop 22 was a ballot measure 
that basically said, no, 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 we don't want to wait another few minutes or pay $5 more for our Uber. They can all be on-demand workers. And so the people may want one thing. The workers may want another. The government may want a third. Companies may want a fourth. This regulatory environment is still evolving, and I will say that it uh, I don't see any prospect for any solidity in the regulatory environment where we're all like, okay, this is going to be the regulatory environment for the next 60 years. And because of that, companies are going to be hesitant to really shift their labor forces in a meaningful way. So the regulatory environment is, is to me, the biggest headwind. And I don't see any, any resolution to that headwind anytime soon. No, I think um, if we were going to bet on something, that the volatility in the regulatory market, uh, if they're going to call it a market, is likely to only be uh, worse in the near term. Uh, you know, I, I think that was, it would be one of the safest bets either one of us could ever make. Fair. Uh, yeah. And, but in answer to the rest of your question, in terms of the future of work, you know, we think about the on-demand workforce. We think about the remote workforce. The remote workforce is the one we have the most data on. We know, and remote work, we need definitions here, right? Mm-hmm. Remote work means more than 50% of the time, you're not going to that office. So if you go there three days a week, but you don't two, you're not a remote worker. You have what's called a flexible work arrangement. Mm-hmm. Flexible work arrangements are going to be the answer to this question, by the way. But let's stay on the full definition of remote. 1.5% of the U.S. workforce worked remotely pre-pandemic. Sorry, 10 years ago, I should say, mm-hmm. in 2010. Over the next 10 years, as we get to pre-pandemic, we grew to 3% of the workforce working remotely. That's a huge shift in, in the labor force, a 100% increase. We don't see that very often. We only see it when we start with very small numbers. And we have new technologies come on stream as we did with video conferencing and project management software and a host of related technologies that enabled remote work. But there were two big impediments as we get to 2020. There were two big impediments when we think about the next 10 years. And when people would talk about remote work, we'd mostly say, well, the low hanging fruit's been cut here and the remote work uh, growth is really, really gonna slow. We'll go from 3% to maybe 4% over the next 10 years because there were two big impediments. One was mindset. There's just a generation of managers that don't care that every study on remote work tells us that those workers are happier, healthier, they are more engaged, they have higher retention rates. They, those managers don't care about that. What they care about is productivity equals presence and they think magic happens when everyone's in the office. And the second was infrastructure, policies, procedures, security protocols, it's one thing to say, Dave, you can work remotely. It's another to give you access to all the company's systems when you're outside of the company's four walls. It's a very different thing. So obviously in March of 2020, both of those things had to change. At the height of the pandemic, we saw 40% of the U.S. workforce working remotely. It's important to know that 42% is the natural limit because clearly people in manufacturing and transportation and entertainment and logistics can't work remotely. So it is a huge percent of the labor force that cannot Uh, And when we look at the data post-pandemic, the survey data, I should say, because we are clearly not post-pandemic yet, God willing, we'll get there soon. We look at the data about what workers want and you see what managers want. You see a data set start to crystallize around 8% of the U.S. workforce will be remote. Remote meaning more than 50% of the time, they're not going to be in that office. But it's important to remember that most remote workers, like 90 plus percent, still live in a commutable distance to the office. Mm -hmm. 
and about 32 to 33% of the workforce will have a flexible work arrangement. You know what, every Friday I'm going to work from home. Because now when somebody says work from home, people say, okay, cool, I'll see you on the 12 o'clock Zoom and we'll have the 5 p.m. You know, Microsoft Teams stand up and we'll go through the versus two years ago, if someone said, hey, I'm going to work from home on Friday, you'd be like, oh, okay, great, enjoy the beach, yeah. whatever, right? Big shift. So Working from home. Exactly. Yes. So that is stuff that we have real data on in terms of surveys, in terms of uh, what workers want, what managers want. Uh, when we start to think about the last part of your question about the future of work, we think about robots and AI, we still are thinking about not the near term, but we're more thinking about the medium term. So not the next five years, but the next five, uh, five to 20. Okay. And so let me ask you this, because it, it, I think it plays into this too. We're not through the pandemic. God willing, we will be soon. Um, one of the big things, right, is like everybody's going to go remote, right? Like everybody wants to make broad proclamations one way or the other. You and I both agree that everything's in context and like there's not going to be an absolute answer. How much of the way that we have worked you know, and, and I guess probably specifically a lot of the travel and meetings, um, in-person type things, do you think you're going to come back or do you think that's going to carry a lot of the burden of some of this remote and flexible uh, working environment going forward? It's a great question. Look, the short and easy answer is I don't have the data, so I can't answer it. That's, <laughs> that's my favorite, my favorite answer. answer too is like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, you know, ask me in six. I had one of my favorite classes at business school was the, uh, the history of work. And the professor would say things like, is Microsoft, you know, this was 2002. Is Microsoft right to do this? I don't know. I teach history. Ask me in five years. I'll have the answer. And so I loved him. Uh, so I don't know. <laughs> ask me in a few years and I'll know exactly the answer. So what I would say is this. When we look at that survey data, you find that very few workers, about 5%, actually want to go back like nine to five. Like they want to just be in the office. It's very few, but it's not zero. And then when we look at the workers that want to work 100% remote, they don't ever want to go to the office. Guess what? It's about the same 5% that never want to go back, that want to stay fully remote. Very few workers, not none, but very few. The middle, the middle, like 90% say, no, I want to go back. I just want more flexibility. I don't feel the need to be there from nine to five. I don't feel the need to jump on a plane for a one hour across the country for a one hour meeting. Like that's crazy. So on the margin, you are going to see a lot of that behavior eliminated. You will see a lot of business travel, a lot of conferences and a lot of other things. Will they go away? Absolutely not, right? The other thing, important thing to remember is humans are a social animal. We want that interaction. That's mm -hmm. why people, only very few people want to stay remote. They want to actually be around the water cooler, the proverbial water cooler. But on the margin, do they want to take that trip to California if they're in New York for a two-hour meeting? No, they don't. And now they'll have the ammunition. Now they'll have the rationale to say uh, that this meeting can be virtual. I will tell you one of my favorite moments pre-pandemic, it happened right before the pandemic, I, you know, we had a sales situation going uh, back when I was with WorkMarket, the company that I built and sold to ADP, one of the best companies in the world. Um, you should always plug the company that bought yours. And so we were at a meeting and we were having an internal meeting uh, and we looped in the champion uh, of this company we were going to sell to. And we had a meeting coming up 
in a week. And we said, blah, blah, blah. And we said, all right, so we'll see you. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean you're going to see us? I said, well, we're all getting on a plane. We're coming out there. He's like, absolutely not. We, as a organization, have said no vendor can jump on a plane and come and see us. It is environmentally unfriendly. And there is no reason for you to physically be here. And I literally was like, that's awesome, dude. I had zero desire to jump on a six-hour flight one way to come and present for two hours to you and then sleep in some hotel and then take a six-hour flight back. I had no desire to do that. And so from an environmental standpoint, companies were already starting to say, don't come. You will see an avalanche of that now. But does it mean that we will not do those things? Hard no. We will still do them. It's just the marginal meeting will no longer occur. As for what percent of meetings that is, we don't know yet. Who knows? I, I actually think it's sort of great because, again, stuff happens mindlessly a lot of a lot of times. So there, half the stuff I would go do, it was not necessary, and it's totally it's totally fine. Um, I'm I'm even like, don't even we don't have to do Zoom calls. We can just call me on the phone. I, I have one of those. I'm totally happy to answer it. Um, now, let me ask you, though, about something that really is, that goes hand in hand with the book, and that is this special award called the Future of Work Prize, right? Um, tell us what this Future of Work Prize is. So I will tell you this, man. Writing a book sucks. <laughs> it is not fun. It is just not. Um, and the best way to do it is to, is to dust off your Tom Sawyer to Tom Sawyer this thing. And so I was super fortunate to have interviewed hundreds of people that are actually shaping the future of work in writing this book. And they were all so gracious with their time. And then as I realized I was only coming up with about 150 pages and my publisher was like, uh, you're like 100 pages short. I thought, you know what? Let me ask some of them if they'll write their vision of the world of work in 2040. Because look, I happen to enjoy the framework that I set up and history and data and how companies engage workers and that's how we should think about the future of work. But you know what, how much more valuable is it to get the points of view of the men and women actually out there shaping the future of work, the heads of the largest staffing firms, heads of the largest labor unions, heads of the industry associations, the CHROs, some of the world's largest companies. And so I asked them to write and uh, I serve as an advisor to the X prize. So I borrowed a page from their book and said, we're gonna put a $10 million prize in front of this, whoever's the most correct in 2040. Now I'm not the X prize and don't have their capital base. So I had to put it you know, 20 years out. So uh, we will see, because in 2040, one of the writers will receive the $10 million future of work prize uh, as judged by their fellow writers. Also, it's a self-judged thing. They are, they are doing the judging. <laughs> All the writers are doing the judging. No, oh, that's, that's like a fun way to, to yeah. promote a book. Uh, because again, writing anything is a painful process. It is a painful process. I loved it, but it did take me seven years to 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 get this done. And that's even with twenty amazing people writing the last hundred pages. Yeah. Well, there's uh there's the oh, yes. I, I was gonna say I I'll always admire everybody who finishes their books. Uh, I stick so far stuck to magazine articles. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, 2,000 words, I'm good, is, is, is how it works out. Um, but Jeff, how can people find you on the internet? Well, I'll tell you this, Dave. You'll be, the I think, the first place I'm saying this. Uh, JeffWall.com is now live. Uh, I've owned JeffWall.com since uh, the beginning of the internet. I think in 1997, 1996, I bought it. And I finally have put something up there. It goes through the books that I've written and the different talks I've given. Uh, or LinkedIn. 
is always one of my favorite places. And then uh, Twitter is the only place that I don't go by Jeff Wald. I go at, uh, at Jeffrey Wald. I did not get to Twitter early enough to get Jeff Wald. Yeah, well, you and me both. Um, Jeff, man, thank you so much for doing this. I, um, I, found this, I find this whole idea of the future of work pretty fascinating, um, really, really interesting. Um, I, I really like the way that you, you share my opinion that everything's in context and the real answer is we just don't know. We have to just continue to kind of constantly test ideas, look to the market for information and adjust accordingly. I, I mean, you're not a marketer, but you could be with that attitude. I tell you this crazy point of view of let's see the data and let's actually do some thinking before we make a decision. I tell you we're Mavericks. Yeah, Mavericks exactly. Out there, Dave. We shouldn't Big be. data. That's exactly right. Uh, thanks so much, Jeff. Dave, thank you so much for having me. What did you think of my conversation with Jeff Wald? Let me know. Send me an email. It's my name, Dave at DaveWakeman.com. Check out my website, DaveWakeman.com. I've been updating it. Uh, there, I have been actually managed to blog every day, put something new there every day this year. So I'm going to continue that. It helps me think through what I'm thinking. Um, I write very fast. I'm a fast typer, so it's not too much work. Um, make sure you check out my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection, bookingprotect.com. As we come through the pandemic, uh, refund protection is going to be a key tool in helping people overcome any anxiety, any concern they have about show cancellations, things like this. If you haven't already, talk to Simon, talk to Kat, talk to Kath, talk to the team at Booking Protect at bookingprotect.com. Check out my friends at Activity Stream, uh, the folks behind the We Will Recover project. You can find Activity Stream at activitystream.com. Uh, there's a new tool and ideas that are coming out in about two weeks, and we'll do some stuff there that'll help you use data more effectively to market now. Uh, but activitystream.com and We Will Recover.live. We Will Recover is a great resource with 20 to 25 organizations from around the world coming up with ideas and ways to help you recover. Uh, make sure you check out my Talking Tickets newsletter, talkingtickets.substack.com. Uh, it's a great resource, five stories every Friday morning into your inbox, actionable insights, uh, all kinds of cool stuff. And also, I'm really excited about the NPS work that I'm doing with Eventelect. Uh Spoiler, Eventelect has a 77 NPS score. Talking Tickets, the newsletter that I do each week that I just promoted, has 60. Uh, anything above 50 is unheard of, right? Um, and it's a really, really great number to track what customers think about you, how well you're doing by your customers. Um, so we're going to do a bunch of stuff on the blog and the newsletter um, on the podcast to promote that. Uh, the first thing that we have to share with you, though, is I, I put together a worksheet to help you understand NPS, understand how to do a survey for yourself and how to um, use the score and understand it so that it makes sense. It's a really great number. Um, I've been using it for a while now. It, it's helped me make some better decisions around data. Uh, Patrick and his team at Eventelect have been doing the same thing. It's, it's great. I think this is going to be a chance to really learn something that we don't maybe talk about nearly enough. It's cool. So send me an email, daviddavewakeman.com, and I'll get you the worksheet that Eventelect and I put together. Okay? Um, if you need to talk to somebody, don't feel like you need to go through this part of the pandemic alone, you can always email me. It's daviddavewakeman.com. I love to hear from you. 
Um, thank you so much for listening. Let me know. Check out that link for the feedback on the mini episodes. Uh, I'm going to do some more of those. It's going to be great. Uh, a couple more really cool podcasts coming up in the next couple weeks. It's going to be awesome. We're going to get through this thing. It's going to be fine. All right. Let me know how you're doing. I'll talk to you soon. Take it easy.